Hello. Hi, I'm Lily. And I'm Beth. And welcome to Sexy Health with Stash. Woo! How has your week been, Beth? It's been really good, thank you. I'm learning how to do coils at the moment. So I, oh, that's amazing. I I'm so jealous. I my first marina coil on uh, Monday. So it's very it exciting. It went well, but I'm. it's taking a lot of concentration so far. I feel I feel like a lot of responsibility. Um, yeah, okay, how are nice. you? I am good. I am doing not the exact opposite, but my procedures I'm learning at the moment mostly are NG tubes. Um, I'm trying to get really good at them um, currently on general surgery. So they're useful and they're helpful but I, I even that I find a bit scary so the idea of putting a coil in sounds terrifying but hopefully one day I'll be doing that as well um but it's great to see you again and I'm so excited for this week's episode yeah lovely to see you so shall I tell you about who is on the show this week so today we will be speaking to Professor Rak Nandwani Rack is an honorary professor at Glasgow Caledonian University and was formerly a consultant physician in genital urinary medicine he is currently leading a proposal to Scottish Government on ending HIV transmissions in Scotland by 2030, and that's what we'll be talking to him about today. RAC jointly established the Sandiford Integrated Sexual Health Service, which has been serving the city of Glasgow since the year 2000. And in 2022, Bash recognised RAC's contributions by awarding him Honorary Life Fellowship. So please welcome Professor RAC Nandwani. Woo, woo, woo. Woo. Oh, what a kind Hello. introduction. Thank you very much, Beth. I'm very pleased to be talking to you. Oh, we're pleased to be talking to you. Um, Rack, you've probably seen on social media the hashtag, hashtag love gum. And so we start every episode with a slightly cringy, but always fruitful question. Why do you hashtag love gum? Oh, well, I do love gum. Um but it's, I suppose it's because um, I kind of got into it by just being in the right place at the right time. And I can tell you about that. But yeah, I mean, it's the, it, I think it's about the same, same as, as everyone else. It's, it's quite interesting academically. Um, you have great colleagues um, and you have fun. You're also able to um, make people better and you can address anxiety and be non-judgmental. Um, and actually, yeah, it's just a, you can make life you can make life better for for people. And I think that you're also very privileged to be able to hear people's very personal stories and 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 try and help. And Rack, do you have any sort of career highlights? Well, I mean, you are in inverted commas retired. I suppose retired from <laughs> clinical medicine. I I was actually in clinic one day and your um one of your patients had a retirement card for you. And I think you're possibly the <laughs> least retired person I've ever met. Um but what what are your career highlights that when you look back on um you feel most proud of? Okay, well starting now. So I so I'm now um on the board of Public Health Scotland. So I'm a I'm what's called a non-executive director. So it's it's one of these things around around governance. But it's good fun because it means you can influence and you can sort of steer the boat a little bit in terms of, of where where organizations are going. And obviously public health is very, very relevant to to um to to GUM. And the other thing, as you mentioned in your in your in introduction, um so I'm enjoying being an honorary professor at Glasgow Caledonian University. I've kind of switched sides a little bit from University of Glasgow over to being a professor. And we've got this big um, plan to take over the world by having a bloodborne virus elimination 
uh, unit there. So we're, we're coaxing, luring people from el other excellent units um, in the UK um, and, and elsewhere. I ended up choosing gum because I was in the right place at the right time. Um, so I grew, up in, I grew up in Bristol and um, my mum wanted me to stay at home and study. You know, what do you want to go to university for? You can stay at home and... Um, uh, but uh, and, and she was she, she would introduce she would want to introduce me to one of the, the family friends and daughters and marry me off I'm sure that was the plan <laughs> so naturally I went off to London down the M4 and I ended up at the Middlesex Hospital Medical School which actually isn't even there anymore mm. you know it was a great great time to be there near Soho you know if you wanted to go to the cinema you went to Leicester Square if you wanted to Chinese you went to Chinatown so it was fantastic um, but the thing about the Middlesex Hospital was it was really strong on immunology and virus research, which I didn't know at the time. And um, uh, it's where a lot of the early work on hepatitis B was, was Dane particles were found there, for example, that's hepatitis B surface antigen. And it had the first professor of genitory medicine or, or for a long time, the only professor who was Michael Adler, who was appointed back in 1979. So it had a big academic department. So I was a student there and I went along for a six week you call it, I guess you'd call it a special study module now, a six-week special study module in GUM at the Middlesex House. It was great because there was the, they were just working out hepatitis B vaccine and they were doing research on herpes trials on a new drug called acyclovir that had just come out. Heard so, of it. <laughs> yeah, so I ended up um, kind of thinking, oh, this is really interesting. And just exactly as I said earlier on, it dawned on me that I quite liked the non-judgmental approach that people had and you could hear personal stories. And I, I, and also I noticed that there were younger patients coming in who were nearer, nearer my age, and I was in my early 20s then, mm. and so that was quite good. And again, what was not to like? I could talk about sex and make a living out of it, so I thought that was really good. <laughs> and the hours were fairly regular, I noticed, in GUM. It was, although we did inpatient work, um, it meant that the, the people who worked there were quite interesting people who had other lives. You know, some of them played in bands and other people did things in the arts. And of course, we were in the centre of London with the BBC around the corner and Theatre Land just around the road. And I think the other thing that appealed to me was I noticed that there were some um, some people who were out gay and there were women and people seemed to be treated fairly equally. So I thought, well, actually, maybe this might be a good place for a for a brown boy from Bristol to, 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 to work in as well. So it seemed fairly, fairly t flat. Um, and um, yeah, so I thought, do you know, I quite, I quite like this. And then obviously at that time, there was, it wasn't called HIV. I think it was called H, the virus was called HTLV1 uh, when it mm. first came out. And the condition, it wasn't called AIDS. It was called, at that term, time, it was called GRID or gay-related immune deficiency because almost everyone were older, white uh, men, often in the gay men, often in the arts. Um, and so, and so that's, that's who it seemed to be hitting first of all. So that was kind of all going on. And then I went off. I, I go, how do, I become, how do I become a GE physician? And they went, right, right, you've got to qualify first. So I went, I went off and did my elective in Sydney. And in those days, you could push off for six months. So I went off and spent six months in Sydney. What? Yes. And you could basically... That's mental. Uh, yeah, so I was... <laughs> It was it was it was bonkers, but you you learned how to do stuff. And one day, someone came in, a gay white man from um, Bondi in in Sydney, and he had these purple lumps on him, and it, which was Kaposi's sarcoma, which is one of the skin mm. tumors that people get with HIV and advanced immune suppression. And they said, "Oh, have you seen this before?" And I said, "Yes, in London." 
And they went, aha, come, come up and have a look at some of this other stuff. For the, and so there were people at that time in the era before therapy becoming unwell. So I kind of got interested in that. And um, I came back to the Middlesex and I qualified and I became a house officer at the Middlesex and the University College. And I ended up in 1987, um, just at the time of the Don't Dive Ignorance campaign, working in the GU department for six months, six months job. And, um, and a lot of the time I spent doing HIV testing. And in those days, it took about two weeks to get the results back. And nearly everyone that you saw, you had to do the pre-test counselling as it was then because yeah. there weren't any treatments and it was basically saying actually mm. what this means is you're probably going to die and and actually mm. some people were quite unwell at that time um and so mm. i'd see people on the wards and i would give about 10 results a day in those in at that point mm. as well as doing doing the rest of the, of, of the gum eventually i was back at the middlesex and i ended up at st stephen's and the westminster hospital in london working at what became chelsea and westminster later on and um, there's quite a lot of well-known people who were who became leaders in the field of HIV and sexual health who were also all there. We all competed with each other, and it was great fun. But you know, we felt it was a bit like you were you were in the eye of a storm. So that's what I call the it's a sin years. It, you know, there were no treatments, but I was working for the Medical Research Council on a new HIV drug called Zidovudine or AZT, which was monotherapy that mm -hmm. we started that time. It's a trial called the Concord trial. And then later on, I put the first patient into the first combination trial called Delta. And that was, again, early yes. 90s. And that was when we realised that, that things were going to maybe start to change. But the better drugs for HIV didn't come along till later. Often I'd be the person who would get pushed into the rooms in full PPE because no one else would go mm. in there. And um, often the nurses didn't want to inject, do the uh, injections of cotrimoxazole because you had to draw up about eight vials and it okay. took ages so i'd be in the rooms chatting to people and then i'd learn about you know it, it was quite interesting talking to people and i learned quite a lot from the patients themselves and their friends and their relatives most people died i'd go i would end up going to a funeral most weeks um and mm. then eventually i realized that i couldn't carry on doing that so we had to kind of kind of move on and then later on, I went and worked at King's College Hospital, where there were a lot more African patients, a lot more women, uh, some vertical transmission from mother to child transmission at that time. And then eventually, long story short, um, I spent time in Brighton as well. Gosh, you know, this is what happens. You see the world uh, doing, doing GUM. That's one of the great things. And then, you, then I ended up as a consultant um, uh, in 1997 in Glasgow so that's what I did until I kind of not retired 20, 25 years later and on the way yes we did some we did some interesting things like setting up the Sanderford Integrated Sexual Health Service back in 2000 still going strong getting PrEP HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis mm. um, approved and, and rolled out with no money whatsoever in Scotland in, in 2017 ahead of the other UK nations only a little bit ahead of Wales of course yeah it's been it's been interesting but it's just we're only just getting cracking and I think we can do something about about um, HIV transmission elimination I know you want to talk about that so Rack, we have heard all about the goal to end new HIV transmissions by 2030. Can you tell us a bit about how you plan to achieve this and how Scotland's working to achieve this? So there's a group called the HIV Transmission Elimination Oversight Group, or HITIOG for short. 
we were trying to think of good names for it. It's always good if you have a good acronym. But we realised that Scottish yeah. HIV transmission elimination would be shite. So we had to be so careful <laughs> about these names. So, so we ended up calling it the Transmission Elimination Oversight Group. And the idea was we pulled together all these people um, uh, who, who kind of knew what was going on, including third sector academia, people from public health, People from elsewhere in the UK, and uh, you know, we were very much collaborative um, and sharing ideas. And essentially, we looked to see if it was possible to actually um, meet the goal of ending HIV transmission elimination by 2030, especially as we've been slowed down a bit with the pandemic. And um, in essence, you, Beth, you were saying about how how we're going to do it. It's very, it's very, it's yeah. very straightforward. I mean, the first thing is you you, you stop HIV part being passed on from one person to another, regardless of the person's circumstances. The second thing is there are going to be some people out there. That's primary prevention. There are going to be some people out there who've already got HIV. Uh, some of whom will know it, know about it. So you make sure those individuals are linked to care and uh, on therapy and have un uh, undetectable viral load so they can't pass it on. Or if they're, un if they're unaware, you get them diagnosed and provide the opportunity for treatment and support and all the rest of it and preventing further transmission. So that's secondary, secondary prevention. And then the last bit is obviously what puts people off, which is um, sometimes people don't come forward for HIV testing. Um, is stigma and, and misconceptions around that. And more recently, you probably see again, linked to the EastEnders story, some people like Alan, Sir, Sir Alan Sugar think that you can still pass on HIV from mother, mother to oh, baby. Oh, yeah, I saw that. Um, and I think it's a real opportunity to, 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 to try and say what it's like now compared to what it was like in the 1980s with that tombstone advert, you know, the doom and gloom. Yeah. So um, what we did was that the group came up with with five interventions, pillar recommendations around HIV testing, uh, raising awareness, including uh, stigma reduction, doing combination prevention, so preventing HIV from being passed on from one person to another, lots of things around that, depending on the way of transmission, but PrEP's in there, uh, condoms are in there, uh, needle exchanges uh, and uh, other strategies are in there, um, several other ones too. Entry into and retention in specialist care, and lastly, and this is the really important thing that often gets forgotten about, is is partner notification, contact tracing. So when you find someone, particularly if um, if the numbers are falling, if you're successful, then you try and try and find people first through the networks of who they might have been in contact with, and secondly, if there's a cluster or an outbreak, it's again classic public health. You kind of work out what's going on and 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 put an intervention in there. So that's how it's going to be done. It's got twenty-two recommendations in there. In, um, hasn't got any a lot of money so far, but uh, but that's that's the next step of it. And there are a couple of things that are going to be already happening in terms of um, providing prep more widely, rather than just to people who are who know about prep, particularly people who are um, from minority ethnic groups, from who are women thinking about intersectionality and thinking about actually GBMSM, gay bisexual men who have sex with men, who may not be so aware of, of what's happening in terms of, of HIV transmission. And um, the interesting thing that we've done about this strategy, which I think it differs from others, and I haven't found anyone else who's done it, we realise that most people 
work their progress out on HIV transmission elimination, they say, how many new diagnoses, diagnoses of HIV have you had this year? How many, how many people have been diagnosed mm. for the first time? So first ever diagnoses. And then they set targets and say, we'll drop this year by year. And what we realised fairly rapidly was that actually, if you're trying to find all the people who are undiagnosed, there's going to be quite a few. In Scotland, it's not that many because it's a small country. We think it may be about 500. But you, if you if you want to get to that number, you're going to have to you're going to have to find all the people who are already diagnosed. Yeah. And what you're really interested in is the number of people who have just acquired HIV recently or instant infection. Sure. So um, in HIV, you can do a test that's called a nobility test to find out if someone has had. Um, HIV who's, who's likely to acquire HIV in the last three to four months by how tightly the virus is bound to antibodies. So basically, if it's bound really tightly, it's probably more than three or four months since they got it. Oh, interesting. So you can do that and you can say, well, that's, a, that's likely to be a, a, a very recent infection or an instant infection because you can do the civility test. And if it's not bound that strongly, you can say, oh, well, that probably happened more recently. Or you can, you, or as people are testing for things like PrEP or for other reasons, you can actually say, I've got a documented HIV negative test on you three months ago, and now we've got a positive right. test, and you can kind of work out it's, it's recent. Uh, but the really clever thing that we want to do is to work out how many people have been, have acquired the virus in the last 12 months, because that really tells you, because you can't, you can't be everywhere and watch everyone to find out what's happening in terms of actual yeah. incidents. Um, <laughs> And there are ways of doing that, and you can you can do back calculations and surmise whether people have actually whether you, the people that you've diagnosing for the first time are people with established infection more than twelve months ago, or whether they actually got it in the last twelve months, or actually if they're very recent okay. infections. And that's what's really interesting, because mm. um, what it made us think was you can't have targets going down year on year. What you've been thinking, if you're really doing your job well and you're going out and finding lots of people with loads of testing, your numbers are going to go up, aren't they? Because you're going to you're going to you're going to you're going to get into the number of people that were previously undiagnosed, particularly if people are testing in primary care and secondary care and elsewhere. And so, actually, perversely, what we were thinking is we want a target that says you go up and you find lots of people in the between now and 2025 or 2026. But during that time, you also want to try and work out how many people have been recently acquired. And eventually there'll be a tipping point where most of your, the new people are going to be um, recently acquired. Um, and of course, this is about new transmission. We still want people, we still want to welcome people who are living with HIV. There's still loads of people uh, in Scotland. It's about six and a half thousand that we know are already living with HIV the vast majority of whom are on therapy in in treatments and care with undetectable viral load. So we we want HIV. We want people with HIV, uh, and we don't want to make it a zero HIV country. But what we want to do is to prevent transmissions. And I think we, it's a bit like COVID again. This it's kind of got to cross over country boundaries. So it's a bit pointless saying we've done really well as one country or one nation. But people move around too, and I think you know we're not thinking about testing everyone who goes abroad and comes back. Or, uh, although you know, there are I'm not even going to get started on Brexit and uh, migration and all the rest of it. But all <laughs> I'm just saying is, if if we can learn some of this stuff and it's useful to other people too, and the evaluation of it might help other other nations, other countries, other settings work out what the right things to do are. And in Scotland, we've had a particular issue about people who inject drugs. There was a large outbreak of about 180 people 
in Glasgow, which is which is much better controlled now. They had lots of public health interventions, but it's because the eye had been really been taken off the ball around HIV, um, and it, it's very it's a kind of a warning, despite really good um, countermeasures uh, against bloodborne viruses, including Hep C as well. It's 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 possible if if HIV is around, particularly in a population that's homeless, got um, substance dependencies, alcohol issues, all the other things that are going on, that the HIV can come back. So again, I think it's just important to say that whatever we do, we have to evaluate this, and then we can try and learn some things. First of all, about what we've done wrong, what we could do better, but also what we can learn from others and what we can share with others to try and get. That. And to be honest. I wouldn't have got involved with it unless I thought we could actually do it. And there's a lot to, you know, and it, it, we're kind of, we're not just trying to do it with pure brain power. We have to get some people to do some things. <laughs> and I know that services are under a great deal of pressure. I know that there's got to be leadership from GUM, but how exciting, a great time to be in GUM when you could actually see um, bloodborne viruses. Actually, we're talking about seeing the end of them. Okay, Rack, I don't want this to sound really Anglo-centric, but what is it about Scotland that somehow has meant that you guys have been at the forefront, from what I can see, of all of these ideas and novel ways to think about HIV? What is it in the Scottish waters? Well, first of all, clearly our publicity machine has worked because I'm not necessarily (laughs) sure that everyone would would agree with that. And having, having, having Bert worked in more than one UK nation, I think there is a thing about collaboration. I think that for me, it's about, it's the same reason why I love gum. I love working in a country where it's small enough that you can actually get at people, you know, and they're not remote and you can talk to them. And that includes politicians too, actually, as well as, um, you know, people who are in other positions of influence and power. But also it works the other way. It's where, you know, you've got third sector and the community voice is heard. And Mm. I'll, I'll be quite honest I'd say to you, Scotland's been on a on a on a bit of a journey in the twenty five years that that I've been living in Scotland, having moved from London, um, because it was quite a homophobic place. You know, I actually when I first sure. started in in um, working in Glasgow, I had to get interviewed to see if I was um, if I was a an appropriate person um, in terms of my values and attitudes to work with with gay men, mm. and I was going, okay. uh, I've just been at. Chelsea and Westminster and Brighton and, and, and I've been I've been in Soho this whole time and I'm fabulous you know uh, and it's just like but they actually get and it, well, I wasn't quite sure how they were making it but and they gave me a certificate to say I was a fit I wish I could find it that would probably be would be my career highlight if I can find it um but um but it may it did flag up to me that it was an issue because not everyone must have been like that and there must have been an issue around that so um so Scotland's been on this on this journey where um and I can recall when we opened Sandiford as a sexual health service, we had the whole mm. thing about um faith organizations as well. Um, okay. um and I would what wouldn't regularly happen is I'd get wheeled out to do something on the news about the STI figures and then they would have someone who was um anti abortion, anti contraception, anti <laughs> Uh, it was all about promiscuity uh, and STIs, oh, and 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 what would happen in in good old impartiality is I'd say it was this, and then they'd always wheel out some someone who was from a minority view, and eventually I just said mm. I'm not doing it anymore because you're this is not balanced. It's a bit like climate change now, you know. 
or whatever. Yeah. Um, it's not impartiality if you're if you're presenting them as equal things. So um, we've been on this journey in terms of um, um, recognizing equality and diversity, and I think that's proof to me, certainly in Scotland, that you can you can you can, you can change systems, um, although it seems to happen very slowly. Uh, but I think yeah, it, it's a fact. It's a it's a country of five million people, and you can you can you can influence. And we've got some great champions, leaders uh, around, not just in the in in the world of um, health, um, but in other areas too. And I think if you can actually get traction that way, you can you can make a difference. Having said that, sometimes we just chance our arm, and um, what happened with 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 introducing prep was that. Um, we thought it was probably a good idea. And then we had the evidence from something called the Proud Study, which was a very similar mm-hmm. uh, setting to ours in, in Scotland. And um, we kind of knew it was the kind of a, a good thing to do. And so um, we, we got everyone together and we kind of looked at all the evidence and worked at how we might do it. And um, we didn't have any money to do it, though. That's the trouble. We kind of had to have people's goodwills and... and um, make some estimates about how we do it but if you chance your arm a few times and it comes off setting up sexual health clinics getting prep working whatever it is um Mm. you kind of get a little bit of trust and you get okay yeah you lot can deliver things and you can you can get things sorted out and you get allowed you can get away with a little bit more it's a bit like parenting skills i think or or um, (laughs) so you so you can push the boundaries a little bit more and um and then equally what happens is that because you've interacted with people in a reasonable way, you kind of you you have connections that 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 help you, and I'm not saying that doesn't happen sure. anywhere else. Um, I just think sure. that 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 if you can if you can flatten the structures between you know policy and strategy, which sound very remote mm. to you if you're delivering services in FY one or t- or two, or you're working in telemedicine, <laughs> you kind of you can't see how you ch- can change the whole system. But remember, it's always about not just the person who's in front of you, particularly with infectious diseases or, or communicable conditions. It's always going to be about wider societal things. And the, and the bigger thing that's going to change it all isn't just our, the specialty that you're in or the area of medicine or health that you work in. It's going to be about addressing inequalities because um, mm. and actually that's what that's what it's that's what that's the aim of the, the higher aim of the country is, is to is to try and do something about inequalities so i'm not going to get political <laughs> because i don't align mm-hmm. myself to any political party because because you have to work with everyone but there are some some policies and austerity is a very good example of ones that exacerbate inequality mm. um and so it's important to be able to address some of the harms that they do and yeah and i suppose the other if i was being glib i'd say to you sometimes it's much easier if you're working in Scotland, if you say, well, they're not doing it in England and they go or Wales or Northern Ireland and you go, OK, well, we could have a go at this. Let's be different. And that helps a little bit sometimes. Okay. So a little bit healthy competition nice. as well as collaborations kind of kind of the way sure. forward. So so on that note, is there is there anything in the Scottish approach to reaching these goals that you think is particularly novel or is there anything that you've seen um another one of the four nations doing that you thought oh gosh like how, how do we miss that or we need to we need to um implement that into our approach well first of all we're always nicking good ideas 
that's collaborative. <laughs> so we'll share some, but you know, if someone's got a good idea, I, you know, we don't go, someone else has thought of it. We, we're not, we'll go, thanks very much. Yeah, come and tell yeah. us more about it. And equally, Absolutely. our expectation is that we'll, if we come up with good stuff, we'll, we'll share it. And particularly, you know, the evidence behind it, you have to think what's transferable. Um, so I think clearly the work that we've got around people who inject drugs by the way that was a term that myself professor david goldberg came up with i don't know if you heard that p-wid oh. because we got fed up with people being called labeled intravenous drug abusers or idvas or some of the other terms that are still used and some of you will be aware of the whole people first stuff we don't i've been trying not to talk yeah. about cases cases and infected people and all that stuff you know we're, we're trying to we're trying to think about a people first approach the whole time so our work with people who inject drugs is really important because uh, that's where we have seen some of the transmissions and some of the issues um, already. And I think that's a warning, not just within um, the UK. Before the situation in Ukraine, we were working with colleagues in, in, in some of the former Soviet bloc countries that had similar issues around that. So it's about that's a bit of learning. We probably have less cultural and ethnic diversity particularly um more than less than say central london within the m25 uh and that's simply because of patterns of migration although there were times um where where asylum seekers and refugees that were entering the uk were being dispersed to scotland particularly in glasgow um but but again that's partly because there's a more there was a more welcoming um there was housing stock and and people weren't so concerned about the numbers and being overwhelmed because the numbers in terms of ethnic diversity are are, are not the same so i think we can learn from others around particularly the work around um people who are from well people who experience racism that sometimes just use that the term power which is people who experience racism it hasn't caught on but you know i keep saying that um and but but it but but i think again we can learn from some of the work around reaching particular um populations and not classifying uh groups of people as being hard to reach it just means that we're not doing our job well enough so if we can work out how to do that better we will do as i said earlier on we're all trying to do the same thing and it's no point just saying my bit of the world's really good um because people move around yeah, I, I wanted to sort of go back to something you said earlier. So when we were thinking about, so again, looking at the target for 2030 and the biggest barriers to reaching um, ending new transmissions, I think one of the words that came up a couple of times was stigma. And stigma, um, I mean, possibly is going to be one of the biggest, one of the biggest barriers to, I mean, it prevents people getting on, uh, you know, effective antiretrovirals, it prevents um, effective contact tracing, it stops people from um, identifying themselves as possibly at risk of HIV, and so it prevents people from getting tested. I wonder if you could um, talk to us a little bit about that. Yes, stigma is quite difficult to measure. You can do indices yeah. and you can do things and it's a difficult thing. And there's discrimination and ignorance and not not actually... So the first thing is about addressing knowledge so just making sure that people actually have some accurate understanding and knowledge as to what's going mm. on in terms of the facts we're talking about hiv specifically but i could say that about stis or all sorts of other things but actually understanding what that's about uh, and again 
not blaming people and not judging people and i think that's that's kind of where the more more difficult bit that happens um it, it always dawns on me that a good place to start is is people who are in health and social care because you, you're meant to be providing support and care for others that's the, that's the raison d'etre and actually if you did that you'd get if you started there you'd, you'd have a large proportion of the population because people have friends and families and other people that they talk to so i always say talk to other people about it i um i think the, our colleagues in the community and third sector have done a huge amount over the years and i'm not just thinking the big organizations like national aids trust and terence higgins trust and hiv scotland and waverly care and um I, I'm positively women black liners i could go on and on but i think it's really important just to make sure that um that people are coming it from from all ways i don't think it's just about education in sort of um uh educational establishments schools colleges higher education it's actually i, I that's why i think it's really important the mainstream's talking about about some of the stuff so people who are doing campaigns like tackling hiv and visible um role models for people who are living with hiv i think is is just so fantastic again i think i think HIV's gone off the picture a little bit because um, you know it's not the 80s and people wearing their red ribbons and pop stars and and all that stuff people in the eye public eye and I think um, Covid may have helped us a little bit in terms of public understanding of, of public health you know suddenly everyone was an expert on our numbers and transmission rates so contact tracing and all that kind of stuff and maybe we could capitalize on on, on that a little bit yeah but stigma for me, is probably linked with wider inequality. And stigma is always never about, almost never about one thing. It's the intersectionality, isn't it? It's often because an individual is being judged as being other because they have other factors that make them different. And if you happen to have several of these, um, mm. then, it's, then it's not so great mm. for you. And I think um, something I've seen in my career has been how... Uh, people who inject drugs get treated in secondary care it's kind of there's a judgment about it rather than understanding the wider circumstances that brought that person to that to that point so again it's thinking about the social determinants of health sorry i know this is sounding like a lecture on public health, but it's but it's it's not meant it's it's not meant to be because because the idea is if you can actually do things like early years interventions and support people so they're actually cherished and uh, have prestige and status it's not just about chucking money at, at, at problems um, and actually it's that, that more that more caring um, inclusive culture that we're looking for I think that's a lovely note to end on unless anyone has any major last thoughts Rack okay. you have been incredible it's so amazing to listen to you speak it's really inspiring and yeah genuinely have just really thoroughly enjoyed this conversation no, no, I think it's great what you're doing, actually, Stash. I wish we'd had it all these those those years ago. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming to speak to us today, Rack. We really appreciate your time and your insights and knowledge about um, how we're going to prevent new HIV transmissions. Yeah. Thanks, Rack. Thanks, Rack. Cheers. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.